Lord, we praise you. You are the awesome creator of the universe. You, from the beginning of time, have desired to have a relationship with us. And we want to get in on your plan. Your plan is the best. It's awesome. We ask that you would teach us about that plan, that you would point us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Teach us from your word now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. It's page 654 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. We actually put the page numbers up to make it easier to find the passage. And we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse, and we're at this section uh, about the tabernacle, but also how it points us to Jesus. And so I want to start out with a video clip that uh, kind of sets the stage. Rumor has it you two have millions stashed away. Why not put some of that money to work for you with the high yield only investing in gold and silver can bring? Those guys made a mistake, didn't they, going there? Uh, some mistakes are humorous, but other mistakes are extremely costly. And in our passage, we're going to see the tabernacle of the Old Testament worship, but also how it points us to Jesus. And within this passage, we're going to see how they had to make sure they got it right because it had to be the right way in order to point us to Jesus. And therefore, we also need to make sure we get Jesus right. So let's look at our passage. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Most Holy Place. 
It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the Ark overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Now our passage goes on and it speaks of the sacrificial system. So it first talks about the tabernacle, then the sacrificial system. So there's really two parts to this message on the old covenant ministry. But today we're going to look at the tabernacle and its importance, okay? So it starts out in verse 1 where we see the Old Testament tabernacle had strict regulations. Look what it says. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. Uh, Albert Moeller, in his commentary on this book, makes this statement. He says in verse 1, the author reminds his readers that the Old Covenant had particular regulations concerning worship. God, through Moses, prescribed specific covenantal duties and a precise place in which to perform them. Unlike the pagans... The Israelites were not to worship God however they wanted. The one true and living God specifically told Israel how and where to worship him. His regulations for worship were expressly authorized by his word. A failure to abide by them led to grave consequences. And so we see here the Old Testament tabernacle had these strict regulations. In fact, it begins in Exodus chapter 25. I want you to turn there. It's the second book in the Bible. So you got Genesis, then Exodus. And in Exodus 25, we see this command to get it right. Look what he says. Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. So they had to be very particular, make sure they get it right, but notice it's because God wants to dwell among them. He wants us to experience his presence, but in the old covenant, they had to get it right. Now, I want you to look at Exodus chapter 40, skip to chapter 40, and we'll see that Moses paid attention, okay? Look at Exodus chapter 40. Verse 16, Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. Verse 21 at the end, just as the Lord had commanded him. Verse 23 at the end, just as the Lord had commanded him. 25, just as the Lord had commanded him. 27, just as the Lord had commanded him. 29, just as the Lord had commanded him. 32, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Do you think he's trying to make a point? And he absolutely is. This was critical that the old covenant tabernacle was made exactly how God called them to make it because, first of all, God cares about how he is worshipped. He doesn't 
Just say it's a free-for-all. Worship me however you want, as Moloch brought out. He cares about how he's worshiped. Under the Old Covenant, there's a couple stories that are rather shocking. We First of all, after Aaron, who's the high priest, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, they decide they're going to have some innovative worship. And they go into the Holy of Holies, and they offer some... uh, what the, what the Bible called strange fire was a, an offering that God did not ask them to offer. And God killed them. Now, they died right then and there, and we're like, whoa, what happened? Another instance, when David was bringing the ark to Jerusalem, and they were going to set it up, and he's celebrating, they're all worshiping and dancing and so forth, and then uh, they're bringing on this nice cart as they're driving along, the cart starts to stumble. It looks like the ark of the covenant itself is going to fall into the dirt, and Uzzah reaches out and just steadies it, touching the ark, and God kills him. You think, wow, David even got mad at that. What was going on? Well, listen, it helps us to understand what was going on a little bit here, okay? Uzzah probably was a Kohathite priest. He should have known better, and David should have known better because it was written very specifically exactly how they were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. It specifically says they were not supposed to ever touch it. They were not supposed to put it on a cart. They were supposed to carry it with poles, and that was it. They decided that didn't matter. Uzzah, he thought, well, surely we don't want it to get defiled in the dirt. But listen, dirt never would have defiled the Ark of the Covenant because dirt always obeys God. When water falls in dirt, it always becomes mud every single time, doesn't it? It never disobeys the laws of God. But Uzzah, a sinner, should have known he would defile the ark, and God killed him. To make a point here that this was serious stuff, and innovative worship was not encouraged in the Old Covenant And I believe also because the Old Testament tabernacle points us to Christ. If it was done wrong, we wouldn't get the correct picture of Christ. And so it's very critical that we see this importance. Uh, In fact, look at chapter 9, verse 9. Okay, we... This is past our passage, but it fits the whole section here. This is what he says. He says, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Okay, so he's talking about the sacrificial system. It actually wasn't perfect because it was pointing us to Jesus, but the whole thing is a symbol to point us to Jesus. And so they had to get it right in order for it to be the correct symbol. Because otherwise, they wouldn't properly symbolize Christ. And one of the things we're going to see is that it abs- we absolutely need to understand holiness before we can understand the true worship that comes t- towards God. Okay, Now, it symbolizes Christ. Jesus even said this. 
In Luke chapter 24, we see in the passages above, also in John chapter 5, Jesus himself says that the Old Testament, including the writings of Moses, speak about Jesus. They speak about him. They point the people to him. The whole book of the book of Hebrews, as we've been seeing, brings out the supremacy and the centrality of Jesus to our whole lives. They couldn't get the tabernacle wrong, but even more importantly, we can't get Jesus wrong. We want to understand what we're supposed to understand about Jesus, and then we marvel the most, okay? So keep that in mind. So the old tabernacle had these strict regulations, uh, and then we see in verses 2 through 5, the Old Testament tabernacle is a shadow of the new covenant worship. And it goes on and describes the different stuff in the tabernacle and how this is a shadow. Look at chapter 8, verse 5, if you remember this. From chapter 8, He's speaking of this whole tabernacle system, and he says, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So it's a copy and a shadow of the ultimate point, which is Jesus So the Old Testament tabernacle is a shadow. It's a type pointing us to the new covenant worship that we have in Jesus. So we have to get it right. Now, there's a warning here, okay? So when when we're talking about Old Testament stuff, the Bible says it speaks about Jesus, meaning it's a type of the real thing, the antitype, which is Jesus, okay? So... But sometimes there's two different things we could do as Christians, okay? Some people will just ignore this. Oh, that's kind of boring. I really don't care about the Old Testament. You know, I read it, and I don't really like it, so I don't really want to see how it points to Jesus. But other people who are really zealous and really excited, they sometimes go overboard and see everything and just make up stuff that the Bible never told us points to Jesus, okay? Uh, A warning, let me read from uh, Roy DeWitt's book, The Teaching from the Tabernacle. He brings this out. He says, the extremist is one who finds types everywhere in Scripture and makes every detail of them significant, finding unlimited meaning to every jot and tittle. Their only guidelines for defining a type seem to be general notions and indefinite ideals. Because they do not discipline their imaginations, they arrive at widely different and speculative conclusions. They usually emphasize the colors, materials, and even the numbers of some objects of the tabernacle without a plain scripture reference to support their conclusions. No one would use this method in understanding any other book. Why do so with the Bible, especially since the Bible is its own commentator? Extremists often over-spiritualize the Word of God to such an extent that they distort its true and plain meaning. So we don't want to make the Bible say something it never meant to say either. So when you're dealing with types, what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? That's where we are clear and get our proper and true types. But the New Testament does 
say a lot about it. And so we're going to see here how the Old Testament tabernacle is a shadow, as it says in chapter 8, verse 5, of the new covenant worship. Now, the tabernacle represents God's presence. It was the epicenter of old covenant worship. Uh, In uh, Herbert Wolf's book on the Pentateuch, he brings this out. He says, instead of remaining on Mount Sinai and shrouded in a cloud of glory, the Lord was willing to come down and fill the tabernacle with the same cloud of glory. True, the people could not enter his presence directly, but mediated by Moses, Aaron, and the priests, Israel had amazing access to the Almighty God. God had promised to be with the people, as the name Yahweh itself suggests, and now he would remain with them in the camp. So God wants to be with his people. That's the plan. He wants to dwell among them. Now, as we see under the Old Covenant, because it was not perfect, that they still had a somewhat of a distance, uh, but they were supposed to experience his presence. Under the New Covenant, God takes care of everything so that we can actually enter into the very presence of God, the Holy of holies, okay? But the tabernacle represented God's presence. Uh, Now, so God has always desired to dwell or live with his people. Way back at the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, right? He created the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve could walk with him in the cool of the day. God wanted to be with us from the very beginning, But I want to show you a passage of Scripture that, in my opinion, is one of the most tragic passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. And that's in Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. In this passage, what we see, and this is right after God gives them the Ten Commandments, and God actually meets with and speaks to the people. They hear his actual voice according to Exodus 19 and 20. But look, after he gives them the Ten Commandments, look at the response of the people in verses 18 through 20. He says, All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us, and we will listen. They said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us, or we will die. God never said that. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. See how they backed away. Now, it's kind of interesting. If you, I don't know if you notice this, but verse 20, Moses responds to people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that you will fear him. Did you catch that? Don't be afraid. God wants you to fear him. Because there's two different kinds of fear. One kind of fear is where it causes you to back away because you do not trust 
And that's what they were experiencing. Whereas the true fear of God is where we're in awe of God and we have absolute respect, but it draws us near to God because he, we don't, we're not, we trust that he wants to be with us. That's the kind of fear the Bible advocates, but this kind of fear that they had experienced, a fear of unbelief and that moved them away from God was tragic because God wanted to be with them. He invited them to come. But the, the, the question is, and the, the real thing is here, is that sin is the barrier that keeps us from his presence. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. That's what has wrecked the world. If you want to be mad at someone, don't be mad at God. Sin is what wrecked the world and is continuing to ruin the way it was originally intended to be. Sin is also what keeps us from experiencing the full presence of God. Notice back in our passage, there's two rooms in this uh, tabernacle. There's a the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies, or most holy places, how some translations translate it. So there's two rooms. The priests were allowed into the holy place every day, and they did certain things and, and so forth, but only once a year, and only the high priest was allowed into the holy of holies, the very presence of God, and that was sacrifice, okay? So there's these two rooms, and it's showing the reason why they weren't able to everybody just go right into the presence of God is because of sin, and sin had to be dealt with properly. Under the old covenant, it points us, these sacrifices, they didn't actually bring the full forgiveness, so it didn't bring about this enablement to enter into the very presence of God, but they did point to the ultimate sacrifice which is Jesus. Once he died on the cross, if we have repented of our sins and placed our faith in him, then we can enter into the very holy of holies. The the, uh, curtain has been torn and we can enter right in. But we see here, in all of this, we have to notice that sin is the barrier that keeps us from his presence. Now, chapter nine, verse eight, it says the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. So it had not yet been disclosed, but it would be disclosed once Christ came on the scene so that we could enter into his very presence. You're thinking to yourself, what's the big deal? We, we, we talk about sin. What's the big deal? Sin is not that bad. But see, we don't realize how bad sin is because we have been anesthetized by it. We all sin, don't we? So we don't think it's that bad because we're like in, involved in it. So that's just the way we think. It's kind of like a fish in water doesn't even know it's wet. We've been anesthetized by it. Most religions don't take God's holiness serious enough. God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because of one sin. Banished them from his presence. He destroyed 
an entire civilization by the flood due to their wickedness. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we actually see a glimpse of God's heart of what was going on because of sin, really helping us see just how bad sin is in God's eyes, which is what really matters. Look at what it says in chapters, Genesis 6, verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. The old NIV says his heart was filled with pain. That's what sin does. It deeply grieves God. He rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus came and actually died on the cross. Have you ever wondered why did it take that? Why did the forgiveness of my sins demand that God himself take on a second nature, that of humanity, become a human, allow his own creation to abuse, humiliate, and kill him on the cross, and then also experience the very wrath of God? In our place? Why would he have to go through that? Why couldn't God just say, oh, I'll just go down and I'll do a few nice things and wave my hand and then they'll be forgiven? Why did it take the cross? Because sin is that bad. It is that horrible. Sin is what has wrecked this world. And it grieves God. Jesus himself will actually judge all evil at the end of time, according to the Gospel of John. People today ask, how could a loving God send people to hell when they should be asking, how can a holy God let anyone into heaven? That's when we realize how bad sin is. But God does want us to be near him. He does want us to be completely forgiven and not just to be able to come to a kind of a distance and experience a little bit of the presence of God. He wants us to come right in to the very presence of God like Adam and Eve had it before the fall in the garden. He wants that for every single one of us. And that's why Jesus did what he did by dying on the cross. He wants us to to come near him, but listen, he will not compromise his holiness. We can try to come to him with our own goodness and we'll all fail miserably, or we can come with the righteousness of Christ that's just been given to us, imputed to our account because we've placed our faith in Jesus, that he allows substitution and we can be completely forgiven Not just a little bit. (laughs) Now, back to the tabernacle here, okay? The furniture in the tabernacle actually represents Christ. We see this in the New Testament as it describes these kinds of things, and that's what we see in our passage here, that this is a symbol of Jesus himself. So let's look at the furniture, okay? He first of all talks about the golden lampstand, Okay, so that's one part of the furniture that's in the tabernacle. And in the Bible, light 
represents revelation. It represents God revealing who he is and what his plan is, okay? Revelation. Psalm 119, 105 says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. So light represents revelation. The priests were not left in the dark to minister in the tabernacle. You can imagine if there wasn't a, a lampstand, they wouldn't be able to see, okay? So they were able to see. That's physically, but also God's people were not left in the dark spiritually because God revealed himself and his plan to them. That was, if you remember way back at chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 of Hebrews, we saw that God said, presented how he's gradually revealed who he is and what his plan is in the Old Testament, gradually revealing more and more who he is and what his plan is, but ultimately culminating in the final revelation, which is Jesus himself. When Jesus came on the scene, he is God, so that's who God is, and he is the plan of God, Jesus. So that's the full revelation of God in Christ. And that's why, look at John chapter 8, verse 12, we see Jesus is at one of the festivals, and he makes this declaration. He says, Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Also with that lampstand, it burned olive oil, okay? So the olive oil that it burned in the lamp probably symbolizes the Holy Spirit, uh, as Zechariah chapter 4 seems to indicate. And so we have the Holy Spirit, the triune God, wants to, us to experience his presence. So the golden lampstand. Then we have the table of the bread of the presence. I think our translation called it uh, the presentation loaves, okay? In Exodus chapter 25, verse 30, it calls it the bread of the presence, symbolizing the presence of God and his provision for the people of God. Because there were 12 loaves, uh, which symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel, so the people of God. But the presence of God is what truly feeds them. And God's presence sustains and nourishes us. And it is a promise that he will take care of us but we know that it's through Jesus. John 6, verse 35, we see another statement from Jesus, and this is what he declares. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. I can testify to that. Jesus truly satisfies my soul. And he can yours as well. The first service, the Lord just gave me that song. Just give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. 
That's my prayer for you. I pray for you guys daily. And my prayer is, is that you will truly find satisfaction in your souls when you come to know Jesus. I want that for you more than anything else. Table of the bread of the presence, the altar of incense. <laughs> incense was a sweet aroma to God. And it represented the prayers of his people. We sang that song today, how it represents the the incense rising, represents the prayers of his people. Uh, Wolf talks about this as well. He says, only a specially blended fragrant incense could be burned on this altar. Chapter Exodus 30, verse 34 through 35. There was only a very special blend. They couldn't, uh, any other blend was not allowed. And nobody could use that blend for anything else. If somebody took that blend and burned it in their homes, they, God would kill them, it says. So this is serious. <laughs> okay? But it says the smoke represented the prayers that the people offered to God. Psalm 141, verse 2, Luke 1, verse 10. And we see this, the, uh, the altar of incense. And then the Ark of the Covenant itself. Now that's what's talked about in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember the movie there? Okay. Ends up in a warehouse. That's not true. Okay. Not true. But the real Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, this, uh, this represented the very throne of God. That's what the Ark of the Covenant represented. Isaiah 37, verse 16 brings this out. But Psalm 99 also brings that. I want you to turn to Psalm 99. By the way, it's like right in the very middle of your Bible, Psalm 99, okay? And in Psalm 99, we see this uh, wonderful poem. Let's, let's read it. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble he is enthroned between the cherubim. See, the cherubim, if you remember, that's what we saw back in our passage here. Verse, chapter 9, verse 5. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It, uh, and so there's this, this is how it was made, these uh, cherubim that they carved out. They put it over the ark of the covenant. Well, here it says that... God himself is enthroned between the cherubim. So the, the ark is his throne. That's what, how it's being described here, okay? He says, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. That's uh, where the ark of the covenant ended up landing when they put it in the temple. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great name and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those calling on his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in a pillar of cloud. They kept his decrees and the statutes he gave them. Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their sinful actions. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God. Is holy. 
So we see the Ark of the Covenant represented the very throne of God. It contained a jar of manna, Aaron's staff, and the Ten Commandments representing God's provision, the jar of manna. That was what they were fed by God on a daily basis as they wandered for 40 years throughout the desert, showing that God took care of them. But also we see uh, Aaron's staff representing the earthly established authority that God placed for them. Aaron's staff was the one that butted uh, those who were saying, I should be able to be the leader too. And and so he had Aaron's staff butted showing, oh, this is who I chose. And then we have the Ten Commandments themselves representing the law, all in the Ark of the Covenant. And the covering of the Ark, though, was the cover, our passage calls it the mercy seat. Now, that came from Martin Luther, by the way. It actually isn't what the Greek word means. <laughs> Helisterios is the Greek word. Uh, I think the ESV uh, translates it atonement cover or something like that. Helisterios actually is that which brings about propitiation. And you're thinking, what's that? This is a great word. And y'all should memorize it, go and use it at the, like the lunch table at work, you know, or something like that. Hey, have you heard of propitiation? Okay, propitiation, that is that which, uh, that which takes care of the wrath of God. We'll talk about this more next week, but the propitiation was Jesus himself experiencing the wrath of God that we deserve to experience because of our sins, but if we place our faith in him, he experiences it in our place, and we don't experience it at all. And that that is the good news when we put our trust in Christ. He completely takes care of that. Jesus himself is the propitiation, which we'll see next week. But listen, it's Jesus who's seated on the throne. And we know it's God, but in Isaiah 6, it has that picture of Jesus or of God on the throne, right? You know, the vision that Isaiah had, he's high and lifted up and he's on the throne and, and so forth. But according to John chapter 12, verse 41, it says he spoke about Jesus. He's the one who's on the throne because Jesus is God. And so... Ultimately, the ultimate tabernacle is Christ himself. Let me read from Muller again. He says, The new covenant, however, shifts our focus away from the tabernacle. Under the new covenant, a central location of worship required by God no longer exists. Since the Spirit unites us to Christ by faith, Christians now worship the Father in spirit and in truth, not in a tabernacle. Furthermore, Christ now dwells in the midst of his people, Matthew 18, 20. John even describes Christ's incarnation in language similar to that applied to the tabernacle. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The epicenter of new covenant worship is not in a place. It's in a person, Jesus Christ. Now, that John 1.14 is a very important passage of Scripture. You remember John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then verse 14, and the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of the incarnation, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, the word became flesh. But then he says dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek literally means tabernacled among us. Clearly pointing to Jesus as the ultimate tabernacle. So the tabernacle and everything we read about it, it points us to Jesus. That's why they had to get it right. In Christ, we see the glory of God. With the old tabernacle, when it was first made and, and uh, sanctified, okay, they, uh, once they dedicated the tabernacle, it says that the glory cloud of God came and filled the tabernacle so full that the priest couldn't even go in. Okay, but then when they moved it to Jerusalem and they built the temple under Solomon and they've dedicated the temple, same thing happened. And that's in Second uh, uh, Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. Same thing happened. The, the glory cloud of God came into that place so thick that the priest couldn't even go in to minister. Okay, but now that Jesus Christ has died on the cross and torn the veil, we can go right into the thickness of the glory cloud and experience the glory of the Lord ourselves. Why would you want to go anywhere else? I mean, yes, you'd fear and tremble, but boy, don't you want to enter into his presence. And he invites us. This is what he says for us. Now, while on earth, Jesus' glory was a veiled glory, but that glory would come out in glimpses, and they go, whoa, who is that guy? Especially at the Mount of Transfiguration. Mount of Transfiguration, they actually saw the full glory of God in Jesus Christ. They realized that he is God. And it says in all three accounts, they were fear, feared and trembled because of it when they experienced that, okay? But Jesus said that his death and resurrection was the ultimate manifestation of his glory. In Christ, we enter the Holy of Holies and experience the very presence of God. And we praise God just like all, everyone around. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 through 14, singing the praises of God specifically to Jesus. The tabernacle of the Old Testament worship points us to Jesus. They had to make sure that they got it right, and we have to make sure we get Jesus right. There are a lot of lies and false claims and misunderstandings out there, mistakes that are extremely costly. Islam says that Jesus is only a prophet, he is a prophet. He's the prophet predicted to come, but he is more than a prophet. Mormonism says he's one of many gods and is the brother of Lucifer. No, he is not. Jehovah's Witnesses say he is the first creation of God. But the Bible says that Jesus created everything that was created. And if he was created, that means he made himself, which is illogical. No, Jesus is God, not the first creation. The Bible says he's the mediator of God, and he is God. He is the one we worship. He is 
Lord. He is to be the center of our life, not the periphery, not just a part of our life, but he calls us to make him the center of our life. I also believe that the greatest mistake we can make is to walk away from Jesus, who invites us to come and experience God. Let's pray. Jesus, we do confess that thinking about just walking right up to you <laughs> and experiencing your presence is, is an awe-inspiring thing. But oh, do we ever want to. You've invited us to come if we've placed our faith in you. If we've repented of our sins, placed our faith in you, that you died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven completely, then we can have no fear and come right up to you and approach you because you love us and you want to be with us. You are holy. So we have to come through the blood of Jesus Christ. But you are loving invite us to come and so we do you are great you are awesome we bow before you we worship you but we enter into your presence even now for you are here let's stand and worship our great God <laughs>